As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. One trick that I've learned over the years is just shut up and just let them talk. (laughs) You know, just let them talk because eventually they will just tell you everything that you need to know and just take some notes. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I want to ask you, do you have a strategy right now where you are getting leads that come into your inbox while you're sleeping? Do you have a strategy where you are optimized with both Google AdWords and SEO, search engine optimization? If not, then guess what? Today's your lucky day. We've got a free strategy session just for you, and it's with Dan Barrett. If you recognize his name, he was a guest on episode 565, and he is the only certified Google partner agency that works exclusively with real estate investors. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash strategy and get a free strategy session to learn with him how to implement an online strategy for your market in both SEO and Google AdWords. Go to adwordsnerds.com forward slash strategy. Best ever listeners, welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is a show where we cut out the fluffy stuff. We only talk about the best advice that moves your real estate investing business forward. And guess what? This is the world's longest running daily real estate podcast with us today to talk to us about wholesaling and buying and holding, which is what he's focused on. How you doing? Mick Satcher. Hey, thanks, Joe. I'm, uh, I'm doing really well. I'm looking forward to this, man. Looking forward to it as well. A little bit about Mick. He is the owner of the wholesaling company Rehab Vault. You can check them out at rehabvault.com. Click through on the show notes page. 50% of his income comes from his 20 buy and hold properties as well as his three to four yearly flips. And then 50% comes from his 15% yearly wholesale deals. He's the organizer of a local real estate investing club, which is based in York, Pennsylvania. And with that being said, Mick, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your focus? I got started in real estate in the year 2004. I actually ended up staying in York, Pennsylvania, which is where I am right now. And I actually came to college here to York. And uh, I remember studying uh, in my MBA classes, finance and all that kind of stuff. And 
the professors were getting excited about two, three, four percent returns in the stock market. It was right around that same time that me and four other roommates of ours were living off campus. And this one guy used to show up every month and just show up to our house and come collect payments. And I thought to myself at the time that he was collecting around 300 bucks for each one of us, which ended up being what, 1500 he was coming and getting from us every month. And uh, I did a little bit of research a little bit further. And I thought to myself, man, I wonder how much these houses in York go for. Lo and behold, at around that time, this was prior to 2004, but they were going for around 40 grand, 50 grand, maybe 60 max. And I sat there and analyzed the numbers and I thought <laughs> to myself, holy crap, these professors are getting excited about three, 4% returns. This guy must be making a killing. With that knowledge, I knew I kind of wanted to get involved in real estate at some level. And when the time came, I went through the whole corporate America thing and got a great job at a big five accounting firm, but it didn't fit my personality. And after I quit that, I kind of got into the mortgage business. So I learned the background and the inside tricks on financing for investment properties. So when it was time to jump, I went and got like a 5% down loan. They were doing 5% down loans for investment properties back in 2004 and uh, ended up buying my first two rental properties in York and uh, did it right around the college because it was something that I was familiar with already. And I still hold those two properties today. And over the years, I've just kind of filtered in some more quality properties here and there and also got involved in actually flipping them, buying them, fixing them up and reselling them. And then by default, kind of got involved in wholesaling as well. You mentioned financing tricks for investment properties. What type of financing tricks for investment properties are you implementing right now? Well, to be honest, most of the ones that I'm trying to implement right now is I try to get owner financing as much as I can. One of the things that I say to people when I'm talking to them on the phone, I tell them, hey, listen, I have more than one tool in my tool belt. I'm not just going to come here and lowball you and give you some crappy lowball offer. By opening up that door and saying, listen, I can get you any price that you want, it kind of opens their ears up. And then all of a sudden, once I go through the whole spiel and give them like a cash offer and they're like, well, that's not good enough. I say, okay, well, here's how I can get to your higher price. And whether that means them holding some paper or maybe buying their house subject to, or you know, just trying to figure out exactly what their pain is and coming up with a solution for it. Let's walk through an example. I think that'd be really helpful. Perhaps one that you've done in the past and the different options you walked the seller through and what you ended up going with. Just one that came off the top of my head, which was kind of like a unique deal, which was the first time I'd done this one. But in the back of my mind, I had the knowledge to do it. So I thought, all right, let me experiment with it. A lady had called me up for a house that I'd sent her a letter. It was an abandoned house that had long grass and all that kind of stuff, which is what I specialize and I love looking for those type of properties. She called me up and said she wanted to sell the house and the cash number I came up with was 40 grand. And the house was only worth around 120, 125 fixed up. Okay. She said, no, listen, that's not enough. We went back and forth, back and forth. And then finally she came up with some number that she wanted was around 65. In all reality, 65 might've worked as well. But at that point in time, I didn't want to pay any of the costs to finance at 65. Basically, just like everyone else, when you're starting off, I'm borrowing money from people and using hard money lenders and private investors and stuff like that. So instead, I said to her, I said, look, 
I'll get you your 65 price, but here's what we'll do instead. It's a little bit more than I wanted to pay. How about this? How about we get into some type of an agreement which states that you still own the property, you continue to pay the taxes and everything on the property. I will come in and I will actually spend my money to fix this property up. And after about two, three, four months, when it's all fixed up and we sell it at the settlement table, you'll walk away with the 65000 that you want. And whatever the remainder is after that basically comes to me. And she basically just took that deal so simply when I explained it that way. Mm-hmm. She was like, all right, you know, I get my 65. Cool. And the nice thing for me was I avoided now all of a sudden those numbers made sense for me because number one, I avoided the holding cost of the taxes on the property and the insurance. I didn't get any of that because it was still in her name. And I didn't uh, have to pay any hard money lenders or any private investors to borrow any money. So now all of a sudden, right off the top, I saved myself maybe, you know, maybe five grand, something like that. But it it made the numbers work. Mm-hmm. So that was just one of the type of deals that. How do you structure that with her? What paperwork well, do you use? What exactly is that? For me, I, I consider that to be like a joint venture kind of deal. I basically just had a simple agreement put together by my attorney. They basically made it like a installment sales agreement, to be honest with you. But I just didn't have to make any payments during that period. And as long as I came through and did what I was going to do, she was obligated to kind of transfer the deed and make everything happen when everything came to fruition. She had an attorney involved as well that reviewed the document that my attorney put together. And it was very simple. Once the attorneys got involved, which sometimes, you know, muddles up the process. But when it comes to something like this, and she was living far away, she was in like California or something. So I never even met this lady. So we kind of had to do everything through attorneys. And once my attorney put a little document together that said exactly what the plan was, it went through really smooth. So there was a no way, at least according to the contract, that when she saw that it was selling for more than the 65K, say 120K, that she could say, hey, wait a second, I want a little piece of that too. There was no way to do that. You know what? In fact, Joe, that's a good point. I believe she already signed the deed beforehand and it was kept in escrow. So I think that's something that my uh, attorney had probably had uh, put together. So there were some measures in place that she couldn't back out, number one. Number two, I also just believe in pure honesty and transparency. I told her, I said, listen, the only reason I'm doing this is because I feel once I fix it up, I can sell it for 120. And so I want you to understand when you see the settlement statement, you're going to see that it's sold for 120. But don't forget. I'm putting $30,000 of my own money to fix up this place. Mm -hmm. So as long as she understood that and that we were very transparent, there was no trying to hide anything. It it was done. That's just the way I prefer to do business that way. I don't like hiding things. You mentioned your first couple purchases were where you went to school in York, Pennsylvania. What school is that, by the way? York College of Pennsylvania. York College of Pennsylvania. Are those student rentals? Yes, they are. I bought them initially to have them as student rentals, but in all honesty, I I figured out as I got into it a little bit more, my demeanor is not really designed for that type of stuff. College rentals are great. College kids are great. They pay on time. Sometimes their parents pay six months ahead of time or sometimes a year ahead of time. But boy, if you get the wrong ones, man, they tear those houses up. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just like, listen, I don't want to do this every year and go in there and clean this up. Now, 
is that an error on my part? Probably. I could have probably gotten better because there's plenty of people making a killing in the college rental market. It just wasn't my cup of tea. What about turning the keys over to a third-party management company and having them do the college rentals and screen? I've often thought about that. Personally, what I've noticed with property rental people, they're great at sending people out there to fix things and charging you 75 bucks to like change a light bulb. But when I really need them to step up and find me some good tenants, wow, do they take a long time to find them. That's what I've noticed, at least in this area. Is that true everywhere? Not really. But as such, over the years now, I've realized that I have contacts in regards to fixing things just in my phone. So where the property management company would really come into play for me eventually is when eventually I decide to leave the York market and go somewhere else, then I would probably employ someone like that to take care of it. But as of right now, I just haven't seen an advantage to using them. What is the advantage to your business? You wholesale, you fix and flip, and you buy and hold for being in a relatively small town and Mm -hmm. concentrating there versus concentrating all over? Well, to be honest with you, I mean, one of the things that I like, York itself, York County has around 500,000 people. That's Um, a lot lot larger than I thought. Yep. I don't concentrate purely on York. York City itself is a market that I do have some rental properties in, but they are the lower demographic market. Lots of turn and burn, lots of people coming in, losing their jobs or issues and stuff like that. However, the returns that you get in the York market are very, very good as far as the York City market. But for the rest of my business, as far as any properties that I'm buying to kind of hold long term and fix and flip, typically I concentrate purely on outside the York City market. So all of York County is fair game for me. Basically, all of York County can be traveled within an hour's drive from where I am. What I like about this market is Though the number of 500,000 people is fairly decent size, it's still a fairly good market. There's not a ton of competition. Believe it or not, actually, York was voted by RealtyTrack as one of the top 10 places in the country for flipping homes. Huh. Based on what? It was actually based on the gross margins that you can get. What they were looking at, it's kind of skewed. They were looking at prices where you can buy a house for like 30000 and then sell it for like 120 They weren't taking into account necessarily how much did you put into that house, number one. Number two, the other thing that they were looking at is statistically the amount of non-owner-occupied sales as opposed to owner-occupied sales in the York market is quite high. I think one of the reasons is, I mean, we're close to Baltimore, we're close to D.C. Believe it or not, in certain parts of York County, the D.C. market even comes up and even the Baltimore market comes up. They like to come up here and live up here because the prices are just way lower. And as such, it's driven prices fairly nicely in the area. When you look at your business, what is the most challenging aspect of it? Because you're doing wholesale fix and flip and buy and hold and you're in a a market that you're focusing on exclusively, York County, which is larger than I thought. But nonetheless, you're concentrated in one area. What's the major challenge? The biggest challenge is finding quality deals. When I said there's not too much competition, but there is, 
There's definitely some fairly big players in this area who also concentrate on buying and fixing up properties. And there's a lot of people who come in from outside markets as well because they must have read that same article (laughs) (laughs) in York, to be honest with you. I just kind of by default ended up here. But so finding quality deals is a little bit of a challenge, especially through the realtor channel. I actually don't find any of my deals through the realtor channel. I very, very rarely buy anything off the MLS. I don't really chase the REO properties either. Where do you Um, get them from? I do a lot of direct mail and I have a fairly decent presence online in the area. And as such, I get filtered some deals that way. And then I've also, over the years, made some nice contacts with local attorneys and stuff like that. So I've been in the business. I think by default, when you've been doing it for a little while, and you happen to be of good character, eventually people are going to start referring business to you. But don't get me wrong, I don't depend on that business. If I had to bet on my next deal, I would say it would come directly through direct mail. So I do a lot of that. What's a tip that you have as it relates to direct mail? I would say definitely find maybe one to three different sources that you like. I've done pre-foreclosures. I've done the short sale foreclosure notices from the courthouse. I've done the probate. I've done the tax delinquent list. I've done the non-owner occupied list. I've pretty much done them all. And then eventually I have filtered it down to top three or four that I really concentrate on. And the ones that I love mailing to are the tax delinquent list. Why? Well, the tax delinquent list is great. Here in York County, at least, they have what's called a tax sale. They have it twice a year, one in the summertime and one in like the fall time. And anyone who's behind on their taxes at least two years is on that list. And that list, believe it or not, is readily and freely available online. You can go get it anytime you want. You can just go online and get it. And then it gives you the address of the property and the name of the person who owns it. Then there is one extra step that you have to do, which is an arduous task that you have to do. You have to figure out, okay, is this property their actual mailing address or is it just the property that's delinquent? So then you got to go through the tax records and find out where the mailing address is and then basically just sending them a quick letter stating, hey, listen, I'm looking to buy a property in that area and I would love to buy your home. Please give me a call. It doesn't even have to be any fancy type of message. These guys are about to lose their house to a tax sale. And they've been getting notices over and over on their door. So all of a sudden, if someone comes in and offers them just a little smidge of an opportunity to be able to make a little money, they're going to jump on and they'll call you. So that list is very, very productive. What's that conversation like? When the person calls me after they've received the letter? Yeah. What's the letter say? I've used the yellow letter, which is a famous yellow letter where basically it says, hey, Joe, my name's Mick and my wife and I would love to buy a property in your area or love to buy, you know, one, two, three Main Street. Please call me. So that's just a simple one letter that works. I use a lot of postcards that basically just state, hey, Joe, I noticed, um, you know, I I don't necessarily say I noticed your properties up for tax sale or anything like that. I just I make it kind of like a blind postcard. Hey, Joe, my name's Mick. I'm actually looking to buy a property in your zip code, and I noticed that you own the property at 123 Main Street. Please give me a call. I'm willing to pay you cash. I'm looking to buy a house within the next 30 days, and I only have a limited amount of funds, so please call me as soon as possible before I commit my funds to another property. In that little postcard, I give a little bit of sense of urgency so that they call. 
And then basically they call and they're like, hey, Mick, I got your postcard. I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks. Tell me, Joe, tell me a little bit about your situation. What's going on? And then boom, I just shut up and listen and let them do their whole thing. And every once in a while, just ask a couple questions. One trick that I've learned over the years is just shut up and just let them talk. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just let them talk because eventually they will just tell you everything that you need to know and just take some notes. And uh, if from the sounds of it on the phone, it sounds like the type of deal that I'm interested in. And obviously I do ask them, I say, hey, listen, in a perfect world, what kind of asking price are you hoping to get for the property? And I usually ask that only after I've asked them, hey, so in perfect condition, what do you feel your home is worth? And if someone says, you know, in perfect condition, I think the home is worth a hundred grand. I'm like, okay, great. Now, Joe, what type of asking price are you hoping to get? And then if they say $98,000, I know this guy's not motivated. If all of a sudden he says, well, you know, I think I could probably take 50. Now that's a guy that the next thing on my mouth is, okay, well, when can I come see the place? Mm-hmm. Because right then, if the difference between what they feel their house is worth fixed up and what they want is quite large, they have just indicated themselves as a serious motivated seller. Mm, yeah. And I use that as my one little cue as in, okay, this guy's motivated. When you go through your mental checklist for that phone call, is there any other relevant piece of information that you need to know other than what do you want to get for it and judging their motivation level? Yeah, definitely. I typically ask them, hey, listen, if you had to pay a contractor to come out there and fix this property up and make it beautiful again, how much do you think it would take? And I'd say 80, maybe 70% of the people respond with, oh, I have no clue. I have no idea. I don't know. I'm like, well, just give me a roundabout figure. Guess. Oh, Mick, I don't have any clue. I'm like, 15,000, 20,000, 30. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, yeah, 25, 30,000. And then the next question I usually ask is, well, you know, how much knowledge do you have with fixing things up. Do you know much about this kind of stuff? They're like, no, I don't know anything about that. Da, da, da. So that kind of also kind of gives me a gauge in regards to is their guess correct? Is it not? So typically that's why I say, look, if you had to pay a contractor, how much do you think it would cost? Because a lot of people sometimes will say, well, it only cost $10,000. Next thing you know, I go out there and like there's a hole in the roof. There's a hole in the kitchen floor. They're like, well, that's me fixing it up. I say, That's why I ask if you paid a contractor, because ultimately that's what I'm going to pay. I don't do the work myself. So once I have that knowledge and what they feel the house is worth fixed up and then what their asking price is, those, in my opinion, are pretty much the three variables that I need to really figure out, okay, do I want to go see this? And then obviously I want to find out their motivation level in regards to why aren't you staying here? Why don't you just fix it up yourself and rent it out? Oh, Mick, I don't have money. Well, why don't you sell it to your family? Oh, my family doesn't want it. They don't want to live in this area. So I give them all the options. Mm-hmm. Well, why don't you list it with a realtor? Oh, no, those guys, man. You know, they want me to fix this and fix that. So now all of a sudden they've narrowed it down to, sounds like, Mick, you're the best choice. Come take this house. Mick, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? I would say, uh, especially because I concentrate a lot on direct mail, I would say pick one or two, three lists that you want to work with and mail to them consistently. 
Don't just mail to them once and get annoyed when there's like a 3% response rate. Instead, mail to them and then mail to them the next month and referencing the first postcard saying, hey, Joe, this is Mick again. I sent a postcard to you about a month ago. I'm still looking to buy a house. I'd love to buy yours. Give me a call. If they still haven't responded, mail again. You know, I'd say 80% of the people out there who try to get into direct mail and don't do well is because they do that one blast thing and then they give up. But if they continue down that road and building like a rapport and building a relationship with them just purely through postcards, the response is really good. How many rounds should you do for one address? I do about five to seven. And I'll tailor that over about a year period. So, and do you, does every single one of them reference the previous one? It does. I try to always build upon the last letter for some reason. It's just my way of building a relationship. And sometimes like the third letter will say something to the effect of, hey, Joe, this is Mick again. I'm worried. I sent a postcard out to your neighbors and they called me, but you haven't called me. What's going on? <laughs> you know, Just kind of building, like showing my relationship and showing my personality. And all of a sudden these people call you and they're like, oh, my God. It's like, I know you already. Yeah. I would have a smart Alec comment for you if I got that third one and I called you. <laughs> hey, dude, some, don't worry about me. I, I'm all right. <laughs> some do. Some, do. Some, call, some definitely call and leave me some nasty messages. <laughs> That's part of the game. <laughs> well, you ready for the best ever lightning round? I am. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. If you're interested in learning more about the Upper West Side of New York City and potentially buying real estate in this coveted Manhattan neighborhood, check out ILoveTheUpperWestSide.com. This website was created and owned by Love Where You Live Realty, who specialize on the Upper West Side. Go to ILoveTheUpperWestSide.com. Best ever book you've read? Whew. Uh, Mind of the Millionaire from uh, T. Harv Eker. Best ever personal growth experience and what'd you learn from it? Personal growth experience. Uh, almost getting a divorce from my beautiful wife that I love. And I learned that you need to uh, really have good balance in your life. I was very, very into just work, work, work. And in essence, basically cheating on my wife with my job. And I didn't realize what I was doing wrong. And since then, I've really made her first in my life and then everything else kind of just fell into place. When your home life is good, your business life tends to become way better. So true. Best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I've done was probably my first flip that I didn't know what I was doing. I knew I wanted to get into the flip business. It was a short sale that I negotiated myself. Back then, when I first got started in 2004, 2005, you could basically call the bank directly and negotiate short sales with them. And I did that. I learned exactly how to get a bank who was owed 150000 to accept seventy, And it was just a crazy, crazy eye-opening experience. How do you do that? Well, you build a case. You've got to talk to them. You've got to show them comps. You've got to show them three different contractor estimates to show that you're legitimate in regards to this property is going to take this much to fix it up. And you got to build a case and say, listen, your current borrower who has this mortgage is not going to pay you. And he's going to possibly file bankruptcy. Take my deal now before it's too late. Best ever way you like to give back. There's a lot of people over the years now who do come to me and ask me for advice. And they are completely blown away when I 
open my doors to them and I say, let's go meet for lunch. And I sit there and just chit chat with them. And, you know, I'm an open book. I talk to them exactly the way I'm talking right now. What type of lists I use, how I do it, what kind of things I say. And a lot of these people expect that you're going to pay for that type of advice. But I just give it back because in all honesty, everything that I've learned over the years has been through me asking questions from other people as well and them giving me some free advice. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? The biggest mistake I made was buying one property here in the York area, which happened to be an older, big home. And I estimated around $60,000 for the rehab. But once we started to get into it and taking some walls apart, it was a property built in like the 1900s and doing a flip on a big, large home like that and having it be that old just opened up a serious can of worms. And I ended up actually losing around nine grand on that deal. It was a sad day, but you know, it was a good learning experience. How long did it take you to do that flip? It actually took about eight months. And one of the reasons why I also lost money was my contractor that I happened to use at the time was a complete crook. It was just stealing from me. It was sad. He'd buy a lot of inventory and then on the slide, take it back and get refund from Lowe's and stuff like that with like gift cards or something. It was like this whole scheme that these guys would do. So another lesson I learned was you really need to keep an eye on your inventory and really be checking your flips every day and get over there and see exactly what's going on. How do you keep your eye on inventory if they're buying it and then they're installing it? Like, what do you do? What I mean by that is inventory management, meaning he was buying too much stuff that was just sitting in the house. Instead, I've learned now to say, hey, listen, you're only going to buy something that's going to be used within the next 48 hours to three days or four days. I don't want anything bought sitting around in the house that's going to be used two weeks, three weeks out. Mm -hmm. So this way, first of all, it keeps your costs lower because, I mean, eventually a lot of people buy inventory on credit cards and this and that. I don't want to be paying interest on stuff that's not even going to be used for a month. And this way, by doing it this way, I can kind of manage it a little bit better and less likely things just kind of grow legs and take off. Yeah. Plus, if you have crooks in the neighborhood, exactly. They, yeah, they, there's not a risk of anything getting stolen that's left over for a long period of time. What's the yep. best place the best ever listeners can reach you? My website, which is rehabvault.com. Anyone can kind of go there and there's like a form there that they can kind of reach me that way and get on my list if they're ever interested in buying in the York County area. That's pretty much the only way that I get in touch with people. That would be the best way. Well, from talking about how to joint venture with the seller so that you got her her purchase price to doing direct mail, making sure that we send out our direct mail every month and reference the previous postcard. And you said you do about five to seven rounds over the course of a 12-month period. And then also your conversations that you have with the sellers and how you approach it. This episode has so many good actionable tips. Really grateful you spent some time with us. I hope you have a best ever day, Mick, and we'll talk to you soon. Joe, thank you so much, man. It was a pleasure. If you're interested in learning more about the Upper West Side of New York City and potentially buying real estate in this coveted Manhattan neighborhood, check out ilovetheupperwestside.com. This website was created and owned by Love Where You Live Realty, who specialize on the Upper West Side. 
go to ilovetheupperwestside.com.